This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. take up to six years to accumulate enough evidence to support advancing an experimental drug into clinical development. Tuzar is working to rapidly accelerate that process through the use of big data and its proprietary algorithms to find and screen large public and proprietary data sets to identify new drug candidates and determine their efficacy. We spoke to Andrew Radin, co-founder and CEO of Tuzar, about the company's technology how it's being applied today, and the evolution of the company's strategy. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. We're going to talk about the drug discovery process, how the era of big data is changing that, and, and the approach your company is taking. You're focused on shortening the discovery stage of drug development. Why don't we begin with that? What's wrong with the way drug development is done today? Why, why does it take so long? Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent question. You know, I, w- I would start off by saying it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, I think the methods and the processes that people have used over the years has, has served us uh, quite well. You know, the industry has brought society a number of life-saving medications, uh, and, and we should all be proud of that. Um, but but I also think there's ways we can make it better. You know, I'm, I'm sure your audience knows that um, it can take, you know, 10 to 15 years and, and estimates as high as $2 billion or more uh, to bring a drug from initial idea to FDA approval. Um, and those costs are only going up over time, right? You know, and, and kind of, I think some of the, the genesis of the, of the company was thinking about there's there's got to be a, a better way. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the challenges that goes into finding new drugs is, is it, you know, traditionally it's been a, a bit of a game of chance, right? Like the way this is handled uh, historically has been to generate lots and lots of molecules uh, to test them out. And there's been advances in high throughput screening and that, and that sort of thing. Um, and look, you know, we know of pharmas that have generated, you know, millions of these molecules. Um, but, but then to sort of take those massive catalogs uh, and go through them, you know, it's kind of a slow and expensive process. Uh, to, to run these wet lab assays and use that to kind of narrow down the choices uh, to find the most promising candidates. Um, you know, and our thought is, you know, there's there's got to be a way to speed that up, right? There's There's got to be some ways that, um, you know, we can use computers and computation uh, to bring a lot of value into that entire cycle and help help shrink those timelines and, and reduce those costs. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about your your platform for discovery. How how does it work, and what what is the payoff in terms of accelerating the process? Yeah. So the the technology itself um, is is about using data science in in kind of some very clever ways. Uh, and let me start by saying, look, we we are not the first computer scientists uh, to take a stab at at the drug discovery problem. 
Um, there's been lots of, of pretty um, pretty cool stuff that's been developed over the years to help, uh, whether that's uh, molecular modeling um, or uh, modeling, you know, protein interaction networks, things of this nature. Um, great stuff, of course, happening on on the genetic side and and finding um, you know differences in, in people's DNAs that can that can help uh, illuminate you know what what disease mechanisms are happening. Um, but one of the, I think one of the issues with all of those computational methods is that uh, they're all very different, right? So someone will go after a particular method, um, and, and they all tend to have this uh, same characteristic of producing lots of uh, false positives, right? So one, one of my, my favorite examples is, um, you know, believe it or not, you can actually use the clinical record, right? When you go in and you, you see your physician, uh, you know, that, that information about that interaction is recorded, and, and there's people that... Uh, can take this data. Of course, it's, it's anonymized and, and your personal information is included, but um, you can use that data to make predictions on which drugs uh, might treat a disease, right? And so the way that would work is you would you would look at a uh, what's called a surveillance window, say over 10 years, uh, a group of people on that medication, um, and then you would look you know, further in the record and say, okay, what's the odds ratio? What's the likelihood that they would get any number of diseases? And you can use that to determine, geez, if people are on this medication, and they have a lower odds ratio of getting a disease, maybe that drug is protective, right? This has nothing to do with biology or, you know, all the protein docking and all the stuff that we're, we're traditionally thinking about from a computational perspective. Um, but just like molecular modeling and other methods, it also suffers from this. Uh, predictions can have lots of false positives, right? Great example, multiple sclerosis, right? So if you looked at that surveillance window, you know, and you did it without some intelligence behind it, you might conclude that uh, that birth control causes multiple sclerosis, which of course it doesn't. Um, but but it would look that way from a data perspective because uh, women get MS at approximately twice the rate of men, uh, and of course, you know, last time you checked, most most men aren't taking birth control. So it's things like that where you get these these false positives. And our idea from the data science perspective is, why not take all these very different data sets and these very different approaches? and build a, uh, a meta-analysis on top of all of it and use that to sort of weed out what's real from, from, from what's fake. And so if we see information in very different data sources that's congruent, that seems to be leaning in the same direction, that gives us some confidence that we might have something that's interesting from a, from a prediction perspective. Oh, there have been a, a couple of developments that have enabled you to do what you do. I thought we could walk through those and, and have you explain how they have reshaped the landscape to make this approach possible. The first is the emergence of cloud computing. Can, can you start there? Yeah, look, I would, I would start by saying um, all the things that we do from a methods perspective wouldn't have been possible um, even just a few years ago. Uh, and there's, there's a number of things that have made this all possible. And certainly cloud computing is, is one of them. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of maybe familiarize folks with the idea of, of cloud computing, um, you know, one of my, my favorite analogies is sort of comparing it to uh, electricity, to, to, you know, the, the power that we use. Um, and, you know, by and large, people don't go out and build their own power plants uh, to, to, you know, power the electricity their businesses need. They just buy it from the utility company, right? Way cheaper than building your own power plant. It's a lot of sunk cost to be able to do that. Um, you use electricity when you need it, and you just simply turn it off when you don't. Um, and cloud, cloud computing is is kind of the same idea, right? You know, for us to do what we've done today, if we had to go out and purchase that physical equipment to do our computational work, 
uh, that would have cost tens of millions of dollars. It was, it was, you know, more spend than we've, than we've, um, uh, ever, you know, come close to to date. Um, but instead, you know, cloud computing allows us to get computing resources on demand. Uh, and, and we can in just a few minutes with, you know, tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure, right? We end up paying a few hundred bucks to, to actually run that within a few minutes. Um, we can get these results uh, computationally. And so that's just huge, right? To have access to just these, these massive computing infrastructures, uh, that you, you know, can literally purchase on a permanent basis. Um, that just makes the economics of the whole thing, uh, possible. The second advance has been machine learning. What what's the impact there? Yeah, look. So yeah, for me, it's it's the infrastructure, it's the algorithms and the data. You know, from the algorithms perspective, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I think people have sort of um, got a sense of some of the things that are happening algorithmically. Uh, certainly, you know, now we're we're more talking to our phones and have them converting that into text, and and that is dramatically better than it's been in years past. Uh, some exciting things happening in the image search space, you know, contextually describing what you want to see in an image and having the computer be able to identify that. Uh, obviously, you know, people have noticed, right, there's there's cars, self-driving cars, uh, at least here in Silicon Valley, you know, roaming the streets. Um, all of that has has come out of a bunch of things uh, just from the algorithmic uh, perspective. And, and, of course, certainly one of them is machine learning. Um, and what that technology allows us to do is to examine massive sets of data um, and, and sort of come through that data and find associations that we might have otherwise missed. Um, and so that's, that's one of the tools in our toolbox. I would, I would also go so far as to say that, you know, machine learning is a very exciting technology, um, but the tools that we use uh, are more than just the machine learning. And I think one of the um, often the misconceptions is oh, I just have a bunch of data, I'll get a machine learning algorithm and, you know, lo and behold, scientific discovery will be made. Um, you know, the reality is there's a lot of other infrastructure that goes into this. You know, nothing is uh, sexy and exciting about data warehousing and statistics, uh, you know, new, uh, modern, high development, uh, high end uh, development languages, you know, but all of these things are part of um, what's in our toolbox and sort of the steady progression in um, algorithms and data science tools uh, and all the things that go into software engineering uh, as well as into computer science, you know, kind of makes this all possible, right? It's, it's a very large and complex system where um, the tool sets and the capabilities and the algorithms are all coming together to make this type of analysis and the type of uh, things that we do, uh, you know, way more tractable today than, than they were in years past. There's also a diversity of publicly available structured data from NIH and other research institutes. How has this been used and, and are you only able to take structured data or is there an opportunity to to really go beyond that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah, obviously data science, you know, requires uh, the data uh, to, to, to do some useful analysis. Um, and this might even sound counterintuitive, but, you know, the more data you have, um, the more likely you are to find uh, some meaningful associations in it. Um, and things like, you know, noisy data, which in the past, you know, we often talk to folks and they say, well, there's this big effort to sort of clean up data and normalize data. Um, you know, modern data science techniques are completely fine with that. Um, you know, we are able to take extremely noisy data. In fact, we, we assume from the very beginning uh, that the data is riddled with errors. Um, and using these data science techniques, and, and especially this is this is a great place where machine learning comes in, um, we can actually extract some of that signal from that noise. 
Um, but your your question about just like, you know, where does the data come from? Um, there's both public and private sources, you know, on, on the public side, um, you know, the NIH, the FDA, um, European Union through places like Array Express, um, there is just a deluge of uh, freely available data that's out there uh, that you can use uh, to do these sorts of things. In fact, when um, before our company was a company, when we were uh, just doing some experiments in a, in a shed in my backyard, you know, we made some very early predictions and some very interesting uh, work, all from public data. We hadn't uh, hadn't yet um, gotten into some of the, the private data sources we have today. Um, and so there's just plenty of stuff out there that, you know, really any any researcher, you know, uh, with a laptop can go and download these things and, and start experimenting. Can you screen custom libraries for, for clients? Do they ever bring those to you? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, find that kind of the marriage between the public and the private data sets, you know, make for much better uh, predictions. Um, you know, our, our typical mode of a project is that we will get associated with a disease expert. Uh, and what we do is, is we can bring them, you know, some new ideas and some new insights to the computation. Um, and more often than not, those disease experts, you know, either themselves uh, have done, you know, a bunch of assays. Maybe they've got some RNA-seq or some other gene expression. Maybe they've got some clinical information. Um, you know, with some of the farmers we've been discussing, of course, they have large catalogs and molecules and data on that. So, you know, everyone based on their expertise and kind of the, the where they, you know, um, play in terms of their relationship to, uh, to us almost always has some data set and, um, you know, we're able to import those into our system. And then, like I say, you know, the more diversity of the data we have, the more quantity of the data, the better the predictions are. And so we love to supplement, you know, what we get from the public sources with what we get, uh, you know, directly from these collaborations, integrate that all into our platform and then, and then use that to make better predictions. You said your approach is not intended to replace, but instead to speed up the way drug discovery is done today. What can this technology do and, and do well and, and what can't it do? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I often get questions about, and it's, you know, the, the questions are sort of stated, you know, like machine learning and AI. It's like the Terminator scenario, right? These, these computers are now sentient and they're going to kill us all. Um, and I'm here to tell you that's not the case, right? We 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 are unable to ask um, our platform how it's feeling today and get any response. Um, and so there is, I think, you know, and, and it is maybe confusing at times because you know you you can you know talk to the computer and you can you can have it translate into different languages and these images. You know, it sort of seems like there's maybe some beginnings of intelligence, and um, but it it I'm here to tell you it is not the same as human creativity, right? And so what our technology is about um, is looking at, you know, billions of points of information and really help teasing out, you know, what are some trends or what are some things uh, that the computer can sort of indicate in the data that the humans can't. Um, and that's kind of where the technology ends. And so as I was saying earlier, you know, all of our projects, we are working with a collaborator in that space who has deep uh, disease expertise and knowledge. And so when the computer is ultimately sort of pointing out things from uh, maybe a recommendation uh, standpoint is the way to think about it, it's more of an assistant for the researcher rather than leading the research itself. And so, you know, it provides a lot of insight, a lot of maybe new ideas, if you will, but ultimately it's the human creativity component that comes in um, that kind of, you know, draws the, draws the conclusions about how we can actually affect uh, disease ultimately and, and produce drug candidates that um, that has uh, uh, some meaning to them.
At what point in the drug discovery process then would you see this best applied? Yeah, so for us, we're we're in the early stages of drug discovery, um, and so you know this is sort of after you've generated maybe a, a large catalog of molecules that you're considering. Um, this is where our technology comes in, into play. We can help uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, go through that catalog um, and figure out what's most efficacious and most likely to be efficacious for a disease. Um, and then we we typically uh, take those predictions and run preclinical studies. Uh, to help, you know, uh, further validate whether those predictions are, are producing something meaningful, um, and and that point is when you know we're typically working with a with a collaborator, and then post preclinical, you know, all the things that you need need to do to bring a a drug to market, you know, going through the phase clinical trials, et cetera. That's not the space we work in, right? We're we're really more focused in that early stage drug discovery, uh, where we can help, you know, focus efforts uh, on you know perspectives. Uh, drugs that you want to you want to ultimately run a preclinical study again. If one of the powers of this technology is to find those sorts of unexpected connections, it, w- it would seem one of the great uses for this would be repurposing of drugs. Is it being applied in that way in any sense? Yeah, you know that's that's an excellent question, and people often ask us, you know, isn't isn't this drug repurposing? Um, you know, and, and I think drug repurposing has, has different meaning to different folks. I mean, it typically means it's an asset that was developed for a different disease, uh, was brought to some point, and maybe it was found not to be efficacious uh, in a phase two, but, but safe in humans. So maybe there's an opportunity to try it in another disease. Uh, in other cases, it might be that drug uh, is an FDA-approved molecule, and it turns out it, it could possibly be used in other diseases. Um, you know, and so our technology uh, certainly doesn't discriminate uh, from from the perspective of making a prediction on whether or not a drug can be efficacious in a disease, uh, whether that's a new chemical entity that has never been brought to the world, uh, or whether that's something that has already you know gone through FDA approval. You know, that the, the computer is is happy to process either. Um, I think you know really the repurposing stuff is more about um, uh, kind of the the pros and cons from the business opportunity perspective. Um, you know certainly some of the pros are a lot of that uh, uh, drug might have been de-risked. Certainly if it's already being manufactured, you know there's a lot of uh, cost and uh, risk that that um, has been sort of previously handled. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know if you're looking at an indication where you know clinical studies. Uh, can cost 30, 50, maybe $100 million, you know, to verify that efficacy. Uh, and, you know, your your drug that you're trying to repurpose is maybe something that's come off patent and now it's a generic. Like, those economics really don't, you know, fit together. Um, you know, and for us, it's it's uh, quite a challenge to figure out how to make those things work. And actually, we're always on the hunt for a solution to that problem um, because we do see uh, sometimes in our predictions, we'll see these repurposed candidates that come up. We we realize that from a business perspective, you know, there's there's no way for us to go, you know, raise the money to go and, and put that through a clinical trial. And so if we could find ways uh, from the economic standpoint, you know, to bring some of those opportunities to the world, we'd love to do it. Um, but that's really where the challenges come in is, you know, is there a good uh, licensing pathway, you know, for that repurposed drug uh, to come on market for for a new indication? Oh, what's been done to to validate the platform at this point? Yeah, so our our I, I kind of hinted about this earlier. Um, 
you know, in the early days, we would run the computation, we would sit down with disease experts, we would we would show them some of the predictions, and we'd go, hey, this is pretty awesome, right? Um, you know, and, and we universally got feedback uh, that was like, well, you know, maybe this will work. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see it, you know, run a preclinical study on this and see what happens. So um, our sense of validation and, and what I think the community around us uses validation is running through those preclinical studies. Um, we have uh, about seven or eight uh, projects underway. Um, we have uh, talked about or released some of the work that we have done, uh, in particular in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, we found some, some new and interesting uh, uh, drugs. Uh, and and what's, what's most, I think, appealing about these, especially one of them, is that they're using mechanisms that are not traditionally associated uh, with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and so there's some, some interesting science maybe to be uncovered about why those drugs are, are working. Um, and so, and, and to be clear, by working, you know, these are preclinical studies, these are early results, this is not tested in humans, but there's some early indications, you know, based on a collagen-induced uh, arthritis model where we're looking at, you know, ankle size, swelling, and doing some pathology, um, you know, afterwards that, you know, these drugs are doing some very interesting things. Uh, and we have some other preclinical studies in different disease areas uh, where we have some, uh, some early and very promising results. So that's kind of where we you know, look to evaluate the quality of these predictions is, um, you know, what's actually happening in that, in that web lab experiment. And, and when the data in, in your platform, is this looking at actual clinical data? Is it looking at chemical structural data and, and how a target might have a receptor that fits? What, what is the, the world of data that you're, you're yeah, examining? Yeah, it's, it's all of that, right? So again, you know, kind of going back to the, this idea that, any one of those data sets, you can apply a method to it. You know, you, you might find some interesting opportunities, but, you know, kind of just littered with false positives. Um, we look at all that stuff. So we, we look at the physical structure of molecules. Uh, we look at their protein binding profiles. Uh, we, we model protein interaction networks and how they relate to disease. Uh, we look at uh, gene expression assays and look at the differentiation between uh, disease and control, uh, as well as look at gene expression differences uh, between drugs uh, applied uh, to a biological system versus its normal state. Um, we look at uh, the clinical record, as I was mentioning earlier in my example. Uh, and so all these very different data sets um, are combined together to ultimately make that prediction. And, and again, we're not only looking at you know just a single method or a single data set. And, and what's the business model here? How, how do you work with your customers and, and has this been evolving? Yeah, so in the early days of the company, um, we were more focused on uh, collaborations with industry, um, using this technology to help uh, promote or help uh, move forward um, uh, disease programs. Uh, and certainly a lot of our, um, uh, the things that we've talked about from a public perspective have been the academic collaboration uh, with, with Stanford and with Mount Sinai, University of Chicago and places like that. Um, we are starting to, to shift our focus a little bit um, and more looking to um, get uh, catalogs of molecules that we have uh, some licensing uh, uh, relationship with. Uh, and the reason is, you know, historically what we've, what we've been focused on is just showing the technology works. And so um, we would choose uh, compounds that have already been synthesized, you know, that we could go out to Sigma and buy at low cost and show that they, they do something interesting in a, in a preclinical setting. Um, and now we're focusing on, on, on things that can um, um, bring market opportunity as well. And so that's, you know, proprietary compounds that are that are owned uh, or generated uh, by folks who do that work. 
Um, as I say, you know, there's many pharmas who've generated uh, millions of these compounds. And so we are starting to now uh, examine those large uh, compound libraries, uh, look for things that could be potentially efficacious in disease, uh, showing that those, um, those predictions are meaningful in preclinical studies, and then working uh, with that uh, partner uh, where we're licensing those compounds uh, to create you know, either joint ventures or, or, or collaborations to help progress those uh, molecules into, into clinical studies and, and ultimately to FDA approval. Andrew Radin, co-founder and CEO of Tuzar. Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, it was great to spend time with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.